All right, we're going to pick up today in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. So if you want to turn there while we get ourselves started, we're picking up in the middle there, right? Obviously, there's a Colossians chapter 1. Um, but uh, so we're going to, before we get ourselves started, some intro and some background to, to get us to the point of knowing what we're talking about there in Colossians chapter 2. So um, to begin with, uh, Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he's writing in a corrective sense a very specific message um, to speak to them because they are dealing with in the Colossian church, uh, something that's pretty common thing that we ourselves still deal with to this day, and uh, they have a name for it here, um, they, and we call it Gnosticism, Gnostic teaching. The idea is of secret knowledge, the, the kind of that sense of, well, there's uh, some kind of hidden truth that's revealed only to a select group or special group of people, and they have that knowledge, and so therefore you need to turn to them to disseminate that knowledge, and that'll give you everything that you need. And in particular for the church and for us here, right, we, we have this kind of reality that we live with where we have the promises of God and things, and, and things that the Jesus has said, right, where he's like, well, uh, you know, in me is life. He who believes in me will never die. Though he dies, yet he shall live. Things like this. And, and you read those and you kind of like intellectually affirm them. Then you go through the reality of like your own existence and your own life. And then you're confronted with the fact that like, well, it doesn't feel like the promises of God. Right, uh, or you're, you're you're sitting there confused, like, well, I'm supposed to have joy, right, and then then like I have this feeling of depression and anxiety, like, where, why do I have this dual sensation going on, right? And so then uh, in comes the temptation and the reality that you know somebody could, or even your own thoughts, would lead you to a place that you are missing out on something. Right, and that there is in fact some secret hidden knowledge somewhere that you need to attain to in order to really possess all that Christ is supposedly telling you that you do possess. Right, and so <clears throat> the Colossian church is dealing with this. The Gnostics are uh, people who are taking advantage of this and, and uh, probably themselves self-deceived, honestly, because uh, what Paul is going to do here is he's going to address this notion that uh, there is a secret knowledge to what we will call the life of Christ that can be lived in you. And he's going to basically say that there is not a secret to that, that all you need, that all you uh, possess uh, that Christ has given is already found to you and revealed and, and given in Christ himself. And so there's not, there's not another spot to turn to for that. So he's going to address that by speaking um, kind of in what I will call a dual way to what we've gone through in Ephesians. Right, so in Ephesians, for those of you who haven't been here, we've gone through Ephesians just recently. You can pick up any of the studies on that. There's quite a few to go through, but we'll um, really details very greatly what's going on there. And what you see in Ephesians is basically, in summary, that it's broken into two parts, really. Right, That there is what we have been blessed with in Christ, like the things that we possess in Him. And then uh, the, the following section right, is about how we respond in light of that knowledge. Right, so uh, Colossians, a sister book often called to Ephesians, right, kind of comes from a different angle and it speaks to us about the things that can prevent us from receiving the life that we have in Christ and then talking about how then we respond to that. Um, so they, they kind of go hand in hand. So we've 
previously seen in Ephesians, all that we have, so we won't discuss all of that. We're going to focus on is what Paul focuses on here is that there is a real uh, deception, a real kind of uh, thing to be aware about that you can be hindered from the life of Christ in you by these, uh, these couple of things that, that we'll go through here. But before going to those specific things, Paul has to reiterate to the Colossians and therefore to us, in chapter 1, he covers two uh, things that are really one point, but he, he basically, he is emphasizing the centrality, supremacy, and the importance and preeminence of Christ in all that God does, is doing, and will do. Right, both in you and in the world, right, and so he he does so in verses nine to twenty three, nine to twenty three, by emphasizing that Christ is central to all of God's plans and purposes and everything, both in creation, right, in that part of God's uh, uh, plans, and in salvation. He does so. You can see in verse fifteen. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, that's referencing Christ, the firstborn over all creation. By him, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him. Right? And then again, in salvation, he says in verse 19 of chapter 1, he says, it pleased the Father that in him, that is Christ, all the fullness should dwell by him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself by him, Christ, whether things on earth, things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Right? And so the first reality that we have to embrace that, that, that Paul is recognizing here for the, the Colossian church and that we have to understand is that there is not another place to go to, that you can't find the life of Christ outside of Christ. You can't look to other sources because by design, God's intent is that the only place where life is found is in the Son, right? And so you have to turn to Him. And Paul is going to address um, two deceptive sources, right, um, in what follows, but, but his emphasis is forever and always here, Christ is central. Um, continuing with that, though, not only is Christ central, but the fact that he, he lays out in verse 24 through to the end of chapter 1, Right is is that there's this great mystery that is revealed in Christ and is that Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says this here in verse 27 of chapter 1, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, him we preach. Right, And so he, there's this dual kind of awesome incomprehensible reality that we kind of are coming to grips with here, right? It's that Christ is supremely important and central to all that God is doing and that nothing gets done except through Christ, right? And also he's inside of you, right? Which is like, wow, that this central person, this, this absolutely supreme creator of the universe is here with me, right? And, and embracing that and understanding that, right, is, is Paul addresses this in order to lead them to a place of seeing that they have all that they need in Christ, right? And so our first recognition is obviously then that, that we, we have to first confess that there, we have all that we need. 
there is sufficiency, there is an abundance of oversufficiency even in, in what we have in Christ. And, and so we have to confine ourselves to really embracing that. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. Right, like the, he, was, he was very, very focused on that. And so uh, when we pick up in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul is going to address some things that can get in the way of receiving, embracing, and kind of like walking in that reality of, of, of Christ in you. Right, and so he says here in verse 8, he says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. <clears throat> so to break down a couple of the words that are going on here when he talks about philosophy, we're all pretty aware of the word philosophy. We think of philosophers, we think of Socrates, we think of Aristotle. For those who like really study philosophic people, you think of like Nietzsche and Freud and some other people or whatever and stuff like that. For the rest of us, like we don't even think about the word philosophy, but it's fine. Um, right, but... Um, when we're talking about this word, what it, what, it, what it really means, right, is just kind of talking about that zeal and that passion and that, uh, that appreciation for skill and, uh, in a craft, in an art, in a science, in those kinds of things. That's what the, the word is, is laying out here. And, and so what we're just talking about is basically, as, as typically translated, the love of knowledge, it'd probably be better translated the love of obtaining knowledge. Right? It's not just like, I like that I know things. It's like, I like to learn and to obtain knowledge and those kinds of things. And, and conversely, we appreciate or kind of elevate those who do obtain that knowledge right? or some kind of knowledge or skill. And, and this is a pretty common practice for us. I think it's something that we fall into pretty often, right? Because, I mean, we see things like we see like an actor who's like really good at acting or something, and we see like uh, an athlete who's like exceptional at what they do, and, and we go to, we look at them and we go, let me ask them a question that has nothing to do with acting or athletics and see what they think about that, because they clearly would know something about that, because they've figured out one thing, and, and therefore they know all things, right? And, and it's a pretty silly notion. We've seen the response of like, actors and athletes and celebrities when they're asked questions concerning anything of importance. And, um, <laughs> and it doesn't end well, usually. But um, <laughs> sorry to all of you people who like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, but we do that. Right? We take somebody who has maybe devoted themselves and developed a skill and achieved some form of knowledge, and we elevate them to a place where we think, well, they have now achieved that secret key to life, right? And so it's worthwhile asking them about these, these things because they clearly have something figured out that I haven't figured out, right? And the reality is, is as he continues here, he says, uh, through philosophy and empty deceit, there, when we talk about deceit here, to create this word deceit is is only used not in the, in the, in the, throughout its New Testament use, not in the uses of like a person being intentionally deceptive, except for in Second Peter 
2 when it talks about false teachers, but even then, as it talks about false teachers, it says that they're self-deceived, right? So self-deceived people deceiving you. And then the other uses, right, when it's talking about deceit and he uses this word, talking about like the deceitfulness of riches, the, the deceitfulness of, of self-righteousness, the, all these kinds of things like that. So it's really talking about here the deceitfulness, the empty and vain and futile deceit of that love of obtaining knowledge as a source of promoting yourself to some higher level and obtaining, obtaining that higher, better life, right? That that's an empty promise, right? That's, that, that, that's not actually true. And when we, again, if we just look at like the celebrity life, we can understand that that's, that that's not true just by casual observation when you see things like many years back when Robin Williams, right? He was very famous, very popular, whatever, and yet he still struggled Right and, and eventually committed suicide, and so you're like, well, he, we, we, you think he's 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 got the life he's obtained, he's got his skill, he's he's doing the things that everybody wants to do, and then like, well, on the flip side, he hasn't figured out anything, right? And so it's a deceitful it's a deceitful thing to think that just by the obtaining of knowledge, right, that there is actually some kind of progression into the life of Christ or the life promised to you. <coughs> And the reality is, is that we live under this kind of understanding or, or it's, 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 it's uh, taught or, or, or shared that knowledge is power. And what Paul is getting at here is that knowledge is not power, right? Knowledge is not power. It doesn't actually equate to just because you know now you have achieved or can do. Right, that, and, 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 and walking in this idea that all we want to do is uh, obtain more and more and, and increase our skill and understanding if we just became better in that way, that if we just knew more, that we would somehow obtain to the promises and the life that Christ has promised to us, then we're already in a self-defeated mindset. We're already walking in deception and not walking in the life of Christ. Now, before you hear that and you say, well, then we should just all be dumb and not learn anything, right? Um, this is specifically talking about knowledge and, and the love of knowledge and this pursuit of that. And it says, it, it uses the words, according to the tradition of men and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Uh, a few weeks back, Will put up a scary chart, had a circle, had some dashes and lines and words everywhere, and he was like, this is Greek stuff. And everyone was like, I don't know, I want to see that again. Um, <laughs> right? um, it's, a, it's a really helpful chart, though, um, because uh, the word according here falls under, under one of those things. And uh, it's a directional word, and uh, uh, as a visual aid, I like visual aids more than charts that have lines and things. But... Um, uh, you can picture like a mist which starts at a high point in a, uh, like a, on a mountain point or whatever, and it descends into a valley. And this is what the word according kind of visualizes and represents going down, right? It means there's a starting point above, some higher principle, some higher truth, something beneath it, something that's the cause or whatever, or the source. And then this is from that, this is descending down into this valley of this other thing. And so what we see here is that he says that the philosophy, the empty deceit, the, the deceitfulness of this pursuit of all of this knowledge is not just like generically getting to know things is bad, like learning is terrible, right? Um, although some people who are in school probably would be like, yeah, learning is terrible, you know, whatever. But, um, 
I save that one for high schoolers usually that works. No, I'm just um, but it's according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. The idea here, tradition, it's that oral, practiced, handed down thing, right? Um, uh, according to again the traditions of men, so things that that they have concluded in their reasoning and their rationality of like, well, this is how life works, right? We've all kind of been there. We've all kind of seen that. Uh, we think of like our own parents who are like, well, we did things this way because it worked that way, and then maybe you decide, well, we'll continue that practice or maybe we won't or anything like that or if you you look at well i've learned uh, how many have probably heard like that kind of statement where you're like hey um you know uh when you're like my age you will have done this 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 and that and based on that you know this is the right way to do things or whatever. And you're like, okay, well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's your experience through life is, is a, a tool by which you can like learn in those things and you can pass that on and pass that down or whatever. But essentially, apart from the Lord, that falls under the category of just, you're just passing on traditions of men, of things that you have rationalized and figured out as, as a tool to, to kind of move forward. And so the, the knowledge and the proliferation of those kinds of things and pushing forward from according to the tradition of men, it also says according to the basic basic principles of the world, basic meaning elemental, fundamental, elementary, kind of the the underlying things. And this really um, goes all the way down into the scientific pursuit even, because that's basically what science is all about, right, is the idea of trying to ascertain or understand what are the underlying principles that allow us to make nice predictive kind of uh, observations and, 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 and run experiments and things like that. All of that to say is that if you base your life or if you're just trying to obtain to the promise of God and and, and try to live this Christian walk based solely on what you have, what has been passed down to you and based solely on your ability to rationalize and reason through based on some of the elementary principles of the world and how it works, right? then you're actually not going in the direction of headed towards the life of Christ because that's not according to Christ, right? Um, as a quick footnote, like, I am, a, a, I have a physics PhD. I teach physics. I do research and those kinds of things. And, and, and uh, my wife and I, we love, we love learning. We love science. I, I read textbooks for fun. It's really not cool to think about, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> some people are like, yeah, textbooks. Other people are like, you know, that was the worst thing I could, that I could think of nothing worse than doing that. But anyway, um, you read a physics textbook, like, this is the degree to which what we're talking about, about like just following things according to the basic principles of the world. Because we had like, historically, we had the Enlightenment period, which was more like the darkening period but um (laughs) right because what it did is it it elevated human rationality as the source of all truth right and what he's getting at here is that human rationality is not the source of all truth that that you can't actually arrive at the truth simply by just thinking long and hard about it you need the revelation of the lord in order to get there right um and so specifically back into the scientific thing right if you read a textbook not that like i'm saying go find a physics textbook and read one but if you happen to you'll find that the definition for work states, or for energy, is that it's the capacity to do work. It's, it's, it's the capacity for something to do work. Then you're like, okay, cool, that's, that's fine, I get it. Then you go and you go, well, what's work? You go for work, uh, and you're saying that, that in, uh, it's, it's, it's the measure of how much energy was expended. You're like, oh, uh, okay. So 
energy work, work, energy, energy work, which, what, what are we doing, right? I'm just using the same word to talk about the other thing, like I'm just going back in circles, so I haven't, and this is not, not, not like poking fun at that or anything like that, because I, like I said, I myself am a scientist or whatever, but it's like, there is a point where all we've done is create a framework by which we can rationally discuss the things that happen around us, right? Where we can kind of say, hey, yeah, under the context of forces and energy, this is kind of what happened. Is that really what's happening? Who knows? As far as we can observe, it's very predictable. It works. It's got, we've got underlying principles and it works out great. But like to ask what, what energy is or to ask what charge is or anything like that, it's really just like a, foolish question because it's like, well, we don't, we don't know. It just does this. It does this thing, you know? Human rationality doesn't connect to giving you the tools to say, this is exactly all that is real. At best, all we've done is create a way to explain to ourselves within a framework that we understand what's going on. Right, and so Paul is calling us here not to just not to just reject our intellect, though he's not just saying, "Well, because of that, just you know, everything is dumb and, and just don't learn anything and don't do anything." Right? No, he's not calling us to 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 reject our intellect or or to suspend it or anything like that. But he's calling us to submit it to the reality of the revelation of Christ, right? According to Christ, right? In First Peter, First Peter, in First Corinthians chapter 2, last thing that he's, he's stating there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says that Christ has become to us wisdom, right? You see that there, there is a wisdom and a knowledge that is important to obtain, and then there is this other wisdom and knowledge that, while has some importance, is, is not what will lead you to the place where you are walking in the life that Christ has promised to you, right? And if you focus yourself entirely upon <clears throat> this aspect of just, I want to learn more and obtain more so I can know things, right? You will miss out. And so he says here, do not be cheated. You will miss out on the wisdom according to Christ and on what, what, what comes from him. And as a quick note, the reason you will always miss out on that is because the wisdom that flows from the world, that flows from that, is always antithetical to the wisdom that is found from the Lord always. James chapter 3 talks about this wisdom, and it, it gives it kind of a two, two-headed, uh, it's a two-headed beast or whatever, <laughs> and, and it, it's focused on self-promotion, self-proliferation, right? The idea of, hey, I want to make myself look good. I want to promote myself. I want to improve my standing. I want to better myself. It's very self-oriented in that sense. Or self-proliferation, I want to obtain this for myself, right? Uh, the specifically in James 3 uses the words strife and bitter envy, right? And, and the idea is, is that the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that we, we can't be looking to, right? It's focused entirely on, on that, on, on self-promotion, self-proliferation, whereas the wisdom of the Lord is entirely about the glory of God, right? And has zero things to do with yourself, Right? Because in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, he says the Lord, apart from wisdom, did what he did so that the world through wisdom, right, they didn't know him. Right? They, didn't, they didn't know him through wisdom. If they had, 
they wouldn't have killed the Messiah, right? But he has done this, he has, he has done this in this way so that no flesh would glory in his sight, right? Because here's the reality. If, if you can obtain to the life of Christ simply by sitting, rationalizing, thinking about the basic principles of the world and figuring it out for yourself, then Christ gets no glory in that. God is not glorified in that at all because you have done it yourself. You have not been made like unto Christ. You have made yourself like unto Christ, right? But you can't because God didn't design it that way. Because God wants us to live in the reality that it's his glory and his glory alone, right? Because whether you, you that, that sentence like bothers you or not, right? The reality is, is that we all live because of God. He is glorious. Any glory we obtain is derivative of him. And to live in such a way that denies that truth by saying, I can obtain by myself to this, is to deny exactly what is true. And therefore, you'll never live in the life that Christ has for you. I hope that made sense. That was a very confusing kind of like roundabout way to say that. But all in all, the point is this, right? Is that in order to walk in the life that Christ has for us, we have to submit our, our desire to, to understand and make sense of everything, right? Because he's not here he didn't die, he didn't do what he did, so you could have perfect knowledge here and now of everything that's going on. He did it so that way he could fill you with himself and you could walk with him through all of the confusion, all of those kinds of things, right? And if we trap ourselves in, in the, the wheel of trying to figure it out over and over again and make sense of it, right? Listen, the only thing that he gave us to make sense of it was that he is with us through it, right? That's what he gave us. He gave us the hope, right? And he gave us the promise of his presence, right? Continuing on, there's a second thing that can get in the way of the life of Christ in you. And uh, I'll word it as this. I, I word it here as the, the pride of self-righteousness, the vain pride of self-righteousness. So uh, the previous thing has its great issue in that, just like this one, it, it promotes a sense of pride and therefore drives you away from turning to the Lord as is necessary, right? Because, you know, if you can figure it out, why turn to somebody? I'm one of those guys who... Um, I don't like to ask for help until like I'm like desperate, right? And so like I understand that thing where I'm just like, well, I can figure it out. Like it's usually a point of contention in my marriage, or whatever. But you know, <laughs> where it's like, hey, and Danny's like, well, why didn't you just ask me? I was like, well, I thought I could figure it out. It's like, yeah, but then like you ruined it. I was like, well, yeah, but I tried, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I thought I was doing something good, um, right? And so you run into that where you're like, hey, this, this prevents me from the necessary humility of coming to the Lord, right? James makes it very clear when he says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there's a necessary humility. This second thing here does the same, but on a, in a different way, right? It doesn't, it doesn't promote you uh, to a place of pride through like an increase in your intellect, but rather uh, through the, the vain and, 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 and false 
uh, pride, or what he calls it here a false humility, because it's actually pride hidden as humility, right? Of, of thinking that you are like in this place of moral uprightness by your own standing, right? And so he says here, he says, um, uh, jumping down to, to 15, no, down to 18, sorry. He says, let no one cheat you of your reward and take delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, right? And not folding, holding fast to the head, Right, so what he's talking about here, uh, what we'll get through in verses 11 and downward, right, is Christ accomplished something on the cross, right? And in accomplishing this, he has actually made it absolutely unnecessary for us to be related to the Lord through the law, right? And so what is it that Christ accomplished? We can see here Christ did something that's a bit twofold. Um, <clears throat> one, Christ did something where... He calls it the circumcision made without hands. Right? This is what he says. He says, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism. What is he saying? He's saying, there is a real dilemma, and we actually struggle with this ourselves, kind of like on a, on a regular basis, just in our interactions with other people. Right? Um, where... It's difficult to separate the sin from the sinner, right? right? We all have that interaction with that person that one time, right? Where you're like, they sinned, and you're like aware of it, and you're like, how do I treat them? Because like, I want to be like, the Lord wants me to be like upset with the sin, but like not upset with the sinner, or not. How do, how do I deal with that kind of situation? And the reality is, is that apart from Christ, you really have no tools to deal with that situation because it's only in Christ that the sin is separated from the sinner. The reality is, is that, guys, Christ is not interested in saving your flesh. What he's done in the cross is he's condemned the flesh by living in the flesh, a perfect life. He has condemned the flesh and separated us from it, right? The, the body of sins done in the flesh, he's like, you are, that's not a part of you, right? I will save the soul destroy the flesh, right? And, and, and Paul makes mention of this again back in, in, in Romans 7 when he's talking about this, this difference. He's like, I find in me, I find in me, that is in my spirit, right? That I want to please the Lord, but my flesh, like I can't, like there's this dual thing. Christ did that. Christ put in that, that sword through his word, right? He pierced through to the division of the soul. And he's like, the sinner and the sin can be separated, right? And we participate in that by putting off the body of sins in the flesh, right? But he has done that for us. And since he's done that for us, right, it means that we are no longer subject necessarily to the tyranny of our sinful flesh, right? Because quite frankly, apart from Christ, Apart from Christ, you have no option uh, or powerful tool to wage war against the flesh, right? Hear me out. The word of the Lord, specifically in the law, the Mosaic law and all of those things, fantastic stuff, whatever, right? It is powerless against the indulgence of the flesh. That's what he says here at the very end of the chapter. He says, uh, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion and false humility, neglect of the body. They are no value against the indulgence of the flesh, 
Right? Here's the thing. There is one word by which men can be saved. Romans 1.16 makes it very clear that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Right? You see, and so then if the law is not the power of God unto salvation, but the gospel is, right, then to embrace and turn to the law and, and your standing in the law as a means of saying, I am right with the Lord and therefore I'm walking in the life of Christ is to be self-deceived, right? Because it is not about you accomplishing the things in the law. Because quite frankly, the law is antithetical to you. He says here that he wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, right? Guys, the law's intent was never to make you righteous before the Lord. Do you understand that? There was never to be righteousness found in the law. Its sole purpose was to shut up every mouth that would try to uh, promote its righteousness, right? That's, That's the purpose of the law is that nobody could possibly look at the Lord and say, I've done it myself, right? And so then our relationship to the law must be removed and, and, and traded in for a relationship to the Lord through the righteousness of faith. And this is what Romans tells us when we get to Romans 3, right? And you can read that in Romans 3 yourself, right? It, it's that... Christ has discarded that force. He's forgiven us of that. He's wiped away that, right? And so, therefore, we cannot walk in that, right? We have to solely live by faith, right? And what that means, then, is what follows. There's this two, two-sided coin, then, now that Paul will bring up for us, right? That even though... Right, we're uh, free, essentially, having gone through, free from the deception of 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 false knowledge or or, or of, of deceitful knowledge that's not according to Christ, and even though we're free from maybe considering our standing in the law as the means for which we like walk in the life of Christ, right? And he's therefore calling us to this life of faith. Right? You have to ask yourself, well, what does that really look like? Right? Because I think so much of our struggle in being led away in these deceptions, right, in these two particular areas, is that we have a vision for what the, the life of Christ looks like. Right? Like, the life of Christ looks like me going out, conquering, and being awesome, and doing really cool things. Right? And that false expectation of what Christ has promised you leaves you with this disillusionment sometimes, right? Where you're just like, I don't, I don't know. I didn't actually know what it meant to walk in the life of Christ. And now I'm thoroughly confused, right? And so Paul gives us here really the crux of the whole book in here when he begins in chapter three and he says, if then you were raised with Christ, Seek those things which are above where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you die and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he gives us, this is going to be the twofold, the twofold thing. Right? One is to put off and the other is to put on. And so he says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. He gives a list. 
And then he says in verse 8, you yourselves are to put off all these. He gives a list. And in verse 12, he says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. And he gives another list. Right? And we look at this and there's this sense of putting off and putting on and it's very much intended to be in the sense of like putting on clothes and things. So it's like you, you have to take off the one shirt in order to put on the other shirts, right? Um, and, and what we have to be careful of as we look at this, because there's lists here and we love lists. I don't know, some people love lists, right? Is that we'll just threaten to make our, for ourselves another law and relate to the Lord once again through, instead of his law, law of our own making, right? And, and we, we have to be careful not to do that. And so it's important to understand a couple of things about, this, about these lists that we see. So when he says here first to begin with, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. He's talking about putting to death your flesh. This is reiterated in Romans 6. This is reiterated uh, in in. 1 Corinthians 4, like there, there's, there's 2 Corinthians 4, I'm sorry, right? It's the consistent message, right? And Jesus himself said it when he said you have to take up your cross, right? It's the consistent message that you have to put to death your flesh. And, and Romans 6 does probably uh, the best job for us to make sense of that kind of statement, right? When it says to reckon yourselves dead, to consider yourselves as dead to it. Right? And, and, and that means that all of the desires that flow from your body, all of the desires for thrills, fills, and I wish I had another ills thing to say with it, but you know, whatever. Right? All of those things, right? all of those passions and pleasures that you could spend your life just trying to do. Right? You wanna, I want to go on vacation to feel comfortable. I want to do this and do, and do that to have the thrill of it. I wanna, all of these things so that you can have sensations in your life and experience those sensations on a continual basis over and over and over again. Right? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about putting to death this, this idea of that pursuit. Right? That this is what we mean by the flesh. We actually mean the, the flesh, the sensation that, that you get, the, 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 the working up of the feelings and the everything like that. Right? He's like, let that go right? and instead put on Christ. Now, in letting that go, he gives us actually a second list, which is pretty interesting right? because the second list kind of doesn't, seem to fit, right, in terms of what we talk about with the pleasures of the flesh, right? And that's because that second list really arises in James chapter 4. It talks to us about where wars and strifes come from, right? In James chapter 4, he talks about where do wars and strife come from among you. They do not come from your members, which war in your body, right? And he says, you, you fight to obtain, but you cannot get, and therefore you war, right? And, and what's he talking about? He's talking about that sense of, of, of rage that, that builds up when you even want the promises of God in your life. Like you want, you want something. There's something you want to obtain, right? You think it's a good thing to obtain and your flesh says to you, yeah, it's a good thing to obtain. Let's go for it. And you're confronted with the reality is that there's, there's two things. One, either you, you can't because like you're just incapable or two, what you thought was going to be something that could satiate your flesh didn't right? And so all that's left is the emptiness that's filled with rage because you didn't get what you wanted, right? 
And this, of course, leads us then to put, you need to put that off too. All the wrath, the malice, the, the leading then to the blaming of the Lord and the blasphemy of the Lord from that place of trying to please yourself and then being unable to please yourself and therefore raging against the Lord, right? That we're actually tempted in both ways as we try this life of, of giving up the flesh, right? Is that, that we're, we're, we're led away by our own desires, Right? And then when we don't meet our own desires, then we get angry and we fight and we blame the Lord for it too. Right? And look, he's calling us to, to let that go. Right? And you have to, you have to let that go in order to do the other part too. They, like I said, they're two sides of the same coin. Right? You can't find the life of Christ in simply seeking to please yourself. You can't find the life of Christ in simply looking to have feelings, right, of love, of joy, of peace. When when you look at the the, the spirit, the list of, of the fruits of the spirit, right, it's not a list of feelings and emotions, right? He's not saying, hey, if we walk in the spirit, you're going to feel loving and and have you know like nice warm sensations, right? You're going to feel. No, no, no. What he's talking about is that as you are led by the Spirit, you will be given God's love, right? Which, quite frankly, doesn't always feel great, right? Like Jesus sweat great drops of blood, right? Because he was in so much stress, but he was operating fully in love for the world, right? Like he's not feeling it in that moment, Right? He's submitting to the will of the Father. And so, then we get this, this converse thing that he says here in verse 12. He says, as the elect of God, put on. And again, we don't want to look at this and think that all he's calling us to is to affirm some nice principles. Right? So many times I run into like a, some Christian like organization or some some kind of... Uh, somebody promoting something that they're saying is for Christ, and they're like, yeah, we are like, you know, we're Christians because, you know, we're, we're for love, and we're for peace, and we're for joy, right? Guys, being for these, like, causes and being for these things is not following Christ. Following Christ is not, like, dedication to a cause. It's devotion to a person, Right? It has very little to do with you standing up and shouting on social media that, yes, love is a good thing, right? And it has everything to do with being renewed in your mind so that what flows from you is Christ-likeness, right? It's not, it's not just the imitation of Christ in his actions. It's the impartation of Christ's mind through the Spirit, Right? This is exactly what is meant in Romans 12 when he says that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Right? And so what, what, what we need to do in order for this list to even begin to have reality in our lives is we need to appropriate unto ourselves the mind of Christ. And specifically, there are three things that Christ had in mind that we must also embrace. Firstly, in Romans 8, the, the mind of Christ is a mind which cries to the Father for continuous and consistent aid and leading. It's the mind that cries, Abba, Father. It's not the one that turns in fear from him in its hour of need, but turns to him in its hour of need. <clears throat> 
Secondly, in Philippians 2, we understand that taking on the mind of Christ is the mind which is devoted to humble obedience unto the Father in order to bring about salvation or his will for salvation in those around us, right? It is, it is, is that humble obedience unto the will of the Father, even to the point of death, right? Even to the point of death. Lastly, it also means taking on a mind, this is in 1 Peter 4, this means taking on a mind that is willing to suffer in full confidence that the love of the Lord rests upon you, all for the sake of the plan which he has called you to and his glory. Right? Right, these, are, these are not easy things to have in mind. Right? But this, if we are not imparted with, with, with Christ in us, there is no way that Christ's attributes will ever be seen through us, right? And so he's calling us to put on Christ, to submit all of our rationality, right? To submit all of our intellect, to submit all of our assumption that we are in the right at all times, or that what we're doing is, is perfectly morally good. Submitting that all unto the Father and saying, I'm just going to humbly obey even to the point of death because I am confident in your love. Right? Think of it this way. Um, Peter, when he was with the Lord after the Lord had risen again, and Peter was super sad because he denied the Lord, and so the Lord took him aside to restore him, right? Uh, he has this conversation with him, and Jesus asks him, do you love me? Right? And he's asking him this question, and he's asking him, he's using the word agape, which we've talked about before as a pretty high level. It's only God's love that really has that kind of level of love. And Peter is responding, saying, yes, I have this kind of phileo kind of love. He's like, well, I don't know that I might have that kind of love for you, Lord, but I at least have, you know, maybe some phileo, some brotherly love for you. I'm willing to treat you and think of you, and, and I, I, I'm confident that I have that kind of love for you, right? And then he asks him three times, and he keeps telling him, feed my sheep, and these things. And then by the time he gets to the end, the, the Lord on the third time, he asks him, he's like, hey, do you have phileo love for me? Do you phileo me? And, and it says that Peter was grieved because he asked him, you know, this third time, he's like, do you, do you have a brother love for me? And Peter says this beautiful confession, which is both sad, but both true, and therefore kind of, it needs to be the reality that we walk in, right? And he's like, Lord, you know. That's it. He was done professing his goodness, his righteousness, his idea that he even had enough faith or love in the Lord to do what the Lord had asked him, right? Guys, our faith isn't in our faith. Our faith isn't in our love for the Lord. Our faith isn't in our ability. Our faith is in him, his love, his capability, and resting in that, right? And it's not until you reach that place that you will find that there is that life there, right? Because here's the, here's the thing, is that Christ's life isn't for us when we're talking about appropriating this and taking on his mind and being willing to do these things, right? What it means is taking on every part of his life, which means death 
right? I think we like to look at Christ's life and we like to think, oh yeah, we've got the hope of the future glory and all of that stuff, and we do. We do have the hope of glory and we do rest in that. That's the only thing that really gives us confidence to do the second, the second thing that we're called to or the, the, the primary task here. But in verse four, just real quick, it says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear, right? There is a future hope of glory and there is a life where we're free from sin and all of those things and all that. But Paul said, nevertheless, I live in the flesh still, right? And guys, here's the reality of Christ's life in you that we have to embrace, that we have to walk in. Christ's life for us means death now, right? It means suffering with him as the suffering servant, not as the conquering king. When he comes as the conquering king, then we will rule and reign with him. But until then, we are like our master, persecuted and rejected and, 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 and left here to suffer under the full weight of sin, so that we can accomplish what Christ also accomplished, the glorification of God. Through how we suffer, through how we endure trial, right? First Peter 1 makes it very clear. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has begotten us again to a living hope, right? And then he goes on to say, and in this you rejoice, even if now needs be you are grieved by various trials for a time, Right? Yes, we have a future hope, but life now is caring about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ so that way the fullness of life might be found in him as well. And so, and then you see that in the list, if you pay attention to the list, you'll notice that everything in the list can only exist in a world where there is sinfulness, right? You can't really put on mercies unless there's somebody to be merciful to, you can't uh, humbly meet people's needs if they have no needs. You can't suffer long if there's no suffering. You can't forgive if there's nothing to forgive, right? And so we're not called to make it so that way the world doesn't have those things. We're called to minister to the world in the midst of those things. As a closing note, right, um, in verse 17, he concludes and he says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And guys, Christ's life isn't embracing it, walking in it, rejecting the deceptions that, that are there before us that we can easily slip into and embracing what he has for us instead. It's not just like a one-time thing and it's not just something that you do like occasionally here and there for like one spot. It's not Christ is on the top of your priority list and then like your family is second on your priority list and then work Maybe some people have that flipped, I don't know, right? And then like your friends, and then it's, it's, not, it's not a list of priorities, right? It's Christ is first, second, third, and, and everywhere. Christ is in everything, right? It's Christ in you, it's Christ in your family, it's Christ in your workplace, it's Christ in your friendships and your business relationships. It's, it's Christ everywhere at all times. There is no break, there is no, no stopping Christ being in you. Right? And, and you have to embrace and understand that everything that you do, all of your suffering, all of your trial, all of your success, all of, all, all of it is to be done unto the Lord. Right? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we come before you. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, we thank you for giving us your Son. We thank you for giving us your Spirit. We thank you for calling us to be those who, who have you live through us, Lord. 
it's a high calling. It's, it's, it's too much to comprehend. But Lord, we praise you that, that you've chosen to do it this way. And Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us too. Lord, strengthen us to, to, to walk uh, in your ways. Lord, to be more like you, less like us, Lord. Uh, we, we thank you for teaching us through your spirit, Lord. And we ask that you would just empower us, not just to hear, but to be doers as well. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.